everybody. Welcome to 20Q, 20 Questions with Interesting People, where we learn the origin stories of everyday superheroes in the LGBT community and friends. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and our guest this time is rock on tour, bon vivant, and man about town, Ted Santos. Hi, Ted. Hey, how's it, Tim? Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. So we're going to start right in with the first question, a bit about your background. Where are you originally from, and what was it like? Well, I'm a Jersey boy, so um, <clears throat> I lived in a, a town called Marlboro, New Jersey, just like the pack of cigarettes. And when I moved there, man, it would there were farms all over the place. Right behind my house, there were several thousand acres of cornfields and over the years, we watched them put up houses. I think there are very few farms. So we had peach orchards and apple orchards and horse farms and pig farms and sod farms. We There were all kinds of farms all over the place. So, uh, and lots of wooded areas. So I, I grew up, you know, we had all kinds of animals, deer, groundhogs, and all that stuff, hawks. So I, I grew up as a, as a guy who liked I guess you would say a boy's boy. You know, I love playing in the woods and the dirt and exploring stuff. And I, I'm the oldest of four children. My brother's behind me, and then there are two girls behind him. So my brother and I, uh, we liked playing outside. We were kind of rough, rugged kids. Uh, uh, we were both athletes, both broke records in sports. Uh, we ran football track. My brother played basketball. I didn't. Uh, so. Yeah, so I, I I grew up with a a, a great childhood. That sounds like it. Sounds fantastic. Um, so based on that, uh, which life experience had the greatest impact on you? Well, that's an interesting question because um, probably the it contributed to me being able to break records in sports. And it happened at such a young age that you really don't even realize the impact that it has on you. So uh, I was six years old and my mother had taken her, the, there were only three children at the time. She took us to her mother's for New Year's Eve. And apparently she's leaving late and she drove her brother and his wife home who sat in the back seat and she let her three children sit in the front seat. And I woke up and the car was wrapped around a tree. Oh no. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm bleeding. My brother and sister are next to me. We're all bleeding. We're crying. And I'm just tall enough to look over the dashboard and I watch my mother run home. And within seconds, my father and his cousin come back. They swoop us out of the car and take us to the hospital. And we all had to get stitches. Um, uh, so no big deal, right? Except I watched my mother run home. She didn't limp. She didn't crawl. She ran like I always saw her run. And she wow. had two broken legs. Both her legs yeah. were broken. And oh she ran God. home. So as, as a six-year-old, I now became obsessed with what is it the human body has 
that we just don't know about. So if, if my mother could run with broken legs, we all must have this ability like that we can tap into. And I started reading about how uh, women were lifting a car for their child if the child was stuck under it. And you just hear about all these extraordinary stories. So I was after that. Uh, I literally started researching human behavior at nine years old. At 11, I started working out physical training. Um, and when I went into sports, like I said, uh, I was breaking records. Like I'm five foot six, I weighed 143 pounds my senior year, and I could dunk a basketball. You know, I don't like basketball. As a long jumper, I broke records in football. Uh, at, at my size, 5'6", 143, I was a starting defensive nose guard. So what I, what I learned from my mother break, running with broken legs is that's what I was after. How do you run with broken legs? Like, how do you do this on purpose? And that ended up being a big part of my uh, professional life as an executive. So that, that, that had a huge impact on my life. That's interesting. I, I had actually a few um, adrenaline experiences once. I, uh, I, I, I helped somebody who, uh, who, who had a car wreck, and I didn't, I didn't realize what I had done uh, because you don't think wow. about it in the moment. It just, yeah, yeah. I, um, um, some, some guy crashed. It, it lost control. He had some sort of seizure or something, and um, he was a very heavy guy, and the car was, was parked on, the, on an embankment like, uh, for a, a retaining wall. And uh, I opened the door. I pushed him as if he was a piece of paper, got the car back on, on level ground. Then I went out to the street and picked up a, like, about a 15-foot, 20-foot uh, uh, metal street lamp, picked it up and walked it, put it to the curb, put it down. And people just – they couldn't believe that I did it. And I just did I, – I just shrugged because you just – you know, your, your body just takes over. You know? That Absolutely. Well, are, are you familiar with a, a book called The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler? No, I'm not. Interesting book. They are doing an extremely deep dive into how that works. And they really looked at athletes and in the X Games. And one of the things that they have learned is that the frontal lobe of your brain is like the CEO of your brain, the conductor of an orchestra. And it tells what other parts of the brain uh, to do. It tells you how to move. And when you, anything you're doing, that, the part, that part of the brain is orchestrating everything. Well, when people get into the zone, the frontal lobe shuts down and it's doing nothing, except the rest of the brain is taking instruction from something else and they don't fully they're still trying to figure that out uh so that when you they call it flow in the book most people call it being in the zone uh so they are trying to figure out how do you get people to get into that zone or they say flow on purpose uh is what they're they've been after wow that's very it's, it's fascinating i never heard of this sure. before, I, and i didn't even know i thought it was uh based on an adrenal um uh, a spike, you know, um, because, you know, a lot of people, um, uh, they think fibromyalgia has a lot to do with, um, um, uh, an adrenal, uh, function. There's something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is, uh, the, uh, the molecule that carries energy to your body cells and, and it overloads. It doesn't flush out. 
uh, because it's stuck. Right. And uh, that's what I always thought that that was uh, it could, because they say it usually happens as you, as a result of either a physical trauma or some something that uh, stimulates this, and it doesn't the body doesn't know how to shut that down. Um, and that's one of the theories about fibromyalgia is because it's just you, you you can't flush the uh, out of out of your body cells. But that's just that's just one theory and that's just one possibility. But that's something that um, uh, I was always led to believe that that was what it was and not and not a brain function. So that that's fascinating. Well, so see, this that's why the story of my mother running with broken legs is so important because I could actually get into the zone without any sort of trauma or anything happening. I knew how to do that on purpose. Wow, that's fantastic. I'd like to know about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, um, so, so since you're telling me all these amazing things, and this is pretty fantastic. Um, what would you say is your most noteworthy achievement? My most noteworthy achievement? Uh, well, I created something called the Board of Veteran CEOs, and the Board of Veteran CEOs was created because uh, it's lonely at the top. Right? So I looked at the world of, of companies, and small businesses have well, the United States is set up, you know, you have small business development center, you have all kinds of structures, infrastructure to help small businesses. And then you look at the large corporations, you know, Fortune 1000, uh, you have consulting firms like McKinsey and PwC and Deloitte, you know, all of those very expensive consulting firms uh, can help them. And then you look at the guys right in the middle. And in the middle, they can't afford a McKinsey. You know, it's just they're priced out. McKinsey's priced out for them. Except if you had, if you're doing 150 million in revenue uh, up to, let's say, a billion, you have a lot of the same problems as a Fortune 500, except you don't have access to the same resources. You know, you're not paying an HR person $500,000 a year. Uh, you don't have, um, uh, someone like um, Henry Kravis, who's buying shares, or some of the other uh, activist investors who I know some people think an activist investor is a horrible thing, but they really can be helpful when they start buying up shares of your company and sit on your board. Uh, they, they bring an enormous amount of intelligence uh, in, in the sense of um, ideas and, and practice, best practices. So the guys in the middle have all this complexity and don't have access to the same resources. So what I did is the Board of Veteran CEOs, some people think veterans in terms of the military, but no, I would bring together an intimate group of current or what we call sitting CEOs and have a roundtable discussion. And then I would invite retired or current CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And I've had former CEOs of Dun & Bradstreet uh, Chase Bank, uh, Harris Hotel and Casinos, um, Xerox. So I've had, you know, these real heavy hitters who have who have what you call the skid marks, right? They've made all the mistakes and they they've run smaller companies all the way up to a Fortune 500, and they are the best person for another CEO to talk to. 
And so I created this organization uh, for these CEOs to talk CEO to CEO. And, you know, a lot of times, even if you're a middle market and you have a board of directors, you just, there may be some challenges you're facing that you're not ready to tell your board, I don't know what I'm doing here. So where do you go? So I created that. Fantastic. Uh, I think that's that's a noteworthy achievement for sure. So, um, mm, what you. would you say to? Yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> uh, what would you say to anyone interested in an aspect of your experience? Meaning, if someone wants to explore uh, an idea or prospective opportunity based on what you can tell them, what would be the main thing to encourage or discourage them? So, I'd, I'd say one thing. Um, one thing that the people who move up, the one thing that they do that you really have to look at yourself like a professional athlete. So, you know, you could be a great football player, except if you want to go on to the college, you know, and then on to the NFL, you have to constantly develop yourself. And just having uh, the physical ability, you know, this is now going back to running with broken legs. There's a certain mindset uh, that, you know, if we look at basketball, there's a certain mindset that a guy like uh, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Scottie Pippen, you know, those big names, and even the old names like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, um, uh, you know, those guys who have their names that stood the test of time, there's a mindset that they, they have. So, I'd say it's important to develop your skill, be good at something. If you're an accountant, if you're a doctor, really master your craft. And you also want to master your mindset because we often sabotage or we have our we have blind spots in our own barriers that have been there you know, for a very long time. And if, if you don't know that it's oftentimes you that's in your own way, uh, you could tend to just be okay at your job, you, you won't be great. But constantly developing yourself, mastering yourself. You know, think of a samurai uh, who has mastered his craft as a samurai. Uh, and in addition, samurais not only learn swordsmanship, they also are, they learn about uh, astronomy, they learn about other things like herbal medicines, they learn how to dance, so don't be one-dimensional, even though you're mastering your craft. So I would say constantly develop yourself. That's interesting. I, I often say everyone is their own worst enemy. And uh, it becomes very apparent in different situations. And we're the, we're the ones causing the most problems for ourselves. So I, I, I can't exactly. agree with you more. So um, say because you, you, you've accomplished so much, uh, what is uh, the biggest personal challenge you have faced? Was it a, a personal injury, a seemingly overwhelming task, a personal or professional goal, <laughs> difficult situation you had to overcome? The, the greatest personal challenge happened when I was 21, and I received a phone call telling me both my parents were dead. Oh, no. And I'm... The oldest, imagine, I'm 21, my brother's 19, and my sisters were 12 and 16. So uh, I was living, I was going to college in Washington, D.C. I received the call. I immediately go home, and now I'm taking over the family at 21. 
So there is a lot. So that's that's another one of those. Uh, you know, it, it's a tough thing to say that it was a blessing in disguise because I learned about leadership in a way that you couldn't get in any school. Uh, I learned about leading in chaos. I learned how to delegate. I learned to coach people up. Um, I learned how to pull the best out of people. Um, I learned how to accomplish things that I didn't know how to do, things I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I learned a lot about leadership and human behavior that became so valuable to me uh, when I found myself in executive roles. Okay, um, that's pretty spectacular. I mean, and, and that's a, I mean, it's a big, ch- a big tragedy. Um, t- I mean, to overcome that, that's that's, that's uh, incredible to me. Um, so, and I know this may this may be um, uh, redundant or, or like repetitive, but um, what would you say was the transformational moment in your life? Was it a meaningful gift, a reason to belong to something, being a parent, you know, a good job, bad job, or something? as traumatic as losing both of your parents. For sure, that would have been a transformational uh, point. Uh, Really, maybe the biggest transformational was seeing my mother run with broken legs. That that changed me forever. Okay. Because now I was was after high performance in a way that I had never considered. Yeah, I can imagine, you know. that's pretty. That's well, and, pretty and, and I'll and I'll say why because running with broken legs, that was a big part of allow of what allowed me to be able to manage and handle my parents' death. That same mindset of running with broken legs, and in addition to me having that mindset that okay, if you can run with broken legs, you can handle this situation. Now I had to get my brother and sisters to have that same mindset. So now I had to give it to them. And so that, so my, you know, it, it, watching my mother run with broken legs was a, definitely a big deal. But my parents' death, it, it taught me how to impart uh, certain skills and a mindset to someone else. So, yes. Um, so, I can see that, uh, but, uh, and and this definitely leads into the next question: is um, uh, what drives you? What gets you up in the morning? <laughs> what drives me? Uh, being Ted Santos drives me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, what drives me is is actually being able to outdo myself. There you go. That's a big part of what drives me. Uh, so whatever I've done well, whatever I've achieved, I'm I'm looking to outdo myself, and so that that drives me all by itself. I'm my own competitor. Hey, that's okay. That's fantastic. Uh, um, I think uh, most of the people I know um, who are high achieving, they they don't compete with anybody else. They they're just trying to um, uh, out, you know outperform what they've done before too. So I think that you're in good company. Uh, so here's another question, um, because you have such a, you know, you know, a very strong background. Um, what's the first thing you want to come to people's minds when they think of you? Uh, I'd say the first thing would be leadership. 
So if you ask what I stand for in this world is, is actually leadership um, and being a leader's leader. So there are a lot of brilliant people in the world and there are a lot of great leaders in the world. And I've taken on a huge commitment to develop leaders to be more effective leaders than who they are. So, um, and, and as, as a leader, uh, one of the things that I've learned, and if I look at, you know, mother running with broken legs, parents dying, what I learned is that chaos is not really chaos. It's not what we think it is. So when big problems, when a problem is big enough, it can actually pull the best out of people. So how do you now develop leaders who can intentionally create problems or create chaos uh, and then uh, foster an environment that allows people to thrive and solve the problems that the leaders created? And Steve Jobs is very good at doing that. Uh, he would challenge say. people. Okay. Um, he he so, created problems. He created problems for the organization to solve, and he created those problems on purpose. Yes, he challenged people, and 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 that was uh, I think that was a gift. I think. Um, See, I, I think people are afraid to say he purposely created problems. He created chaos on purpose. On purpose. People are afraid to say that because. Our our culture has a problem with the word problem. We want to avoid it. And it's problems that John F. Kennedy said, we're going to send a man to the moon before the end of the decade. That's a huge problem to create. Yeah. So if you there. look at if you look at the greatest leaders, they have all created problems. Tom Watson Jr. Uh, built that mainframe computer for IBM. It was a huge problem. They went over time, over budget. So creating problems, not challenging people. I'm creating a problem for you to solve. You've got to work it out. Okay. Very good. Um, special, uh, now, you, you, start, you talked about the being in the zone and having this mindset uh, right. uh, and outdoing, you know, outdoing yourself. Um, what is your zen? My Zen, <laughs> my Zen. <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I think it just as at a young age, I learned to sort of sit back and and observe. So I was always that child who uh, I, I learned to shut my mouth and understand what was going on. So my Zen. Is really my ability to um, uh, to be as objective as as any human being can be, right? So we all we always see the world from our perspective and what our environment has taught us to see. Um, so my my Zen is is being able to step back instead of being very reactive. That's a great goal. Uh, that's something I think uh, most people would love to be able to. Uh, Master, you know, mm. uh, it's uh, it helps you absolutely. Uh, um, uh, it's one of the things that I do um, as much as, as often as I can. You know, it's everything from uh, counting to ten, <laughs> biting your lip, and just breathing 
um, helps you just uh, being stop being reactive as opposed to uh, proactive or just um, you know in control of how you do uh, respond to situations. Um, well, you know, sometimes people laugh at me because I'll say, "Huh, you just made a statement." And I know I'm supposed to understand you, except I don't understand what you just said. Even though, and I'll say, let me repeat back what you said. I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you tell me what you're saying? And, and sometimes it's something so simple. And instead of being upset or reacting, I'll ask some questions. Please clarify it. Uh, and it's it's like a dummy. I, I might sound stupid. It's like, well, everyone understands that. And I'm like, well, technically I don't. So tell me what you're saying. And when they explain, I'm like, oh, you know, there are two or three ways I could have taken that. Now I understand. So I think yeah. people don't ask enough questions. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, are... are uh afraid of not looking as bright as they can be in situations. So they, they hold back, you know, uh, right. the, the, it's, it's very intimidating to, to be caught off guard. So uh, I think the idea that they don't want to shake or change anyone's impression of them. They're trying to you know, put that facade out, keep that one image going. And, you know, <laughs> you, you <Right>. know, <laughs> um, it's it, it does intimidate people a lot, I think so. Uh, um, but I'm going to go off a little bit, but I think this is going to go back to a lot of your history. Um, okay. This is my the last of my ten questions. Is uh, it's the threshold? Everyone has crossed the threshold, and that means there's no going back. And we all know that everybody's happened. It's happened to everybody. Um, how did you know? How did you know when you arrived there? How did it feel to cross it? What was the significance to you? What did you leave behind? What are you glad you left behind? And what do you regret leaving behind? And you can take all your time to, to think about that. Wow, that's a huge question. So yeah, uh, in 1996, I left the country. I wasn't an expat. I wasn't working for anyone. I left the country and I lived in Latin America from 96 until 99. And I I literally left everything. I took clothes with me. I owned a house. I, I I had been living with a woman for five years. I gave her the house. I had this car called a Grand National. Very few of them made. I gave it to her. Uh, the only thing I left with her were my suits for my for business. The suits I wear for work. I said, in the event I come back, uh, I'm, I'm I may need these suits, so I left those. <laughs> but every Everything else I took with no intent of coming back to the U.S. I I was wow. gone. Wow, that's interesting. I have a, one of my guests uh, is uh, Australian who lives in Sweden, and he talked just told me that the culture shift was uh, phenomenal to him. Um, and the, the, there are a number of things. Just that the culture is very very different in, in uh, Sweden than Australia, but also he uh, right. laments. The uh, the thing that gets him the most is the uh, is the weather, because it's eternal summer where he lived and uh, he grew up with. And um, uh, Sweden, it's half the time it's very very dark. Half the time you don't get any you don't get any, any sleep at right. all because it's 
So it's 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 it's, uh, it's very different. Everybody has this experience, uh, and that's uh, unique to I think just about everybody. And I think that's pretty fantastic. So I'm going to go now to um, uh, your uh, some of the questions you have chosen, and if I can just okay, okay. So uh, this is a good one. Um, any regrets? Yes. You know, I, I explained to you that I was really good in sports. And one of the things my mother said to me is, don't play sports, just focus on academics. And I followed her advice, and I really should have played sports. I I, I think I could have actually at least gone out for a professional team. I, I think I would have made it to play football, and I think it would have been a, a great experience to have. But I didn't do it. I have a very good friend who uh, was a football All-American, and uh, his uh, he was raised by women. His father died before he was born, and uh, he uh, was the captain of his team uh, in college, and uh, he tried out for the NFL, and this guy challenged himself and challenged himself, but being 5'11", playing safety, would, would be a very hard thing to do in the NFL. So um, what happened was he became a, an extraordinarily successful personal trainer. And uh, now he's got the glittering list of um, celebrities and international wow. athletes. Yeah, you know, wow. the, um, he does. He takes care of um, a, a whole load of uh, people who are um, otherwise they would create some sort of pandemonium in Europe because uh, the way people react to uh, the lives of soccer stars. Uh, they come to uh, to America, New York specifically, for um, for uh, surgery and rehab, and they do it under the, under the radar. And he takes care of loads of them. And uh, he he did that, and um, he is uh, one of those people who he's so driven, it, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and you have to just, you know, he's I think he's 29 years old, and uh, he and his girlfriend owned um, own a load of real estate now, and uh, she's uh, she founded um, several charter schools. And his business is uh, thriving, and it's. I think a lot of it is based on his athletic uh, experience, and, and and as you said, the mindset. You know that right. that, that put him to compete and to 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 uh, push himself farther than he uh, I think most people ever try. You know, and he's just he's exactly. been in that as 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 since he's a little boy, and he's been doing this, and I'm I'm very very proud. Of him. So. <laughs> um, wow. Wow. So yeah, yeah, something else, isn't it? And um, uh, so the, your other question is, uh, this is uh, uh, going to be interesting because um, I have one person tell me this as well, to answer this question. Uh, what was your strangest experience? Strangest experience happened at a very young age. Uh, I must have been about four years old. Like, and my mother... Uh, she was being a stay. She stay at home mom. I, I had, you know, my brother was two years old at the time, and we were at an aunt's house. It was my father's aunt, and they lived in a three-story house. And my relatives, they were my it used to be my paternal grandmother's sisters. They were all very close, so. They would all live in one house, each one sister on a first, another on a second. You know, that's that's the way 
they always lived together somehow, some way. And so here I am at this three family house and my mother and my aunt are sitting on the couch and I went upstairs to one of the other relatives, uh, you know, apartment. And then I came back uh, and I went upstairs and I saw my mother and my aunt sitting on a couch. So I went back downstairs and there they were again. So I went back upstairs (laughs) and I I don't know if I was hallucinating at four. I wasn't doing LSD for sure. (laughs) So I don't know what happened. So when I, when my mother and I left, I remember holding her hand and looking up and asking, did I leave with the right one? (laughs) (laughs) You know that that's referred to, that's a commonly referred to now as the glitch in the matrix. Those experiences, (laughs) that's what people call them. (laughs) That's phenomenal. it's the strangest thing. And I literally looked at her and said, what if I left with the wrong one? You know, I went up and down so many times because I was like, this is not possible. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> this, this, these are great stories. I love this. You're the first person I've ever met who has a glitch in the matrix story. And I love reading about these things. So this is phenomenal. This wow. is really, really cool. And this is one of those things that I, I love hearing about. This, this is great. <laughs> I have a little glitch in my eye going, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 the other strange thing is when my parents died, I wondered, did I leave with the wrong one? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, my my mom was passing. I remember going um, uh, uh, going out to Long Island on the train. It was virtually every day, and uh, I think that I heard her voice on the train, and she had, uh, she was she had, I think she had been slipping into a coma by then, and uh, it was one of those experiences where you don't you don't have any logical explanation for it other than maybe, maybe I'm think, I'm imagining this, but I clearly heard it coming. Right. You know, so that's uh, you know I, I can understand this thing, but uh, this is this is pretty pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> I mean as, as, as crazy as you're telling me, like you, you say, this is it's a really cool story. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, it, it's so, an alternate reality. You know, are there two yeah. of me? You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you know, uh, there's if you can look this up, there's there's plenty of those uh, those lists that on the internet uh, called Glitch in the Matrix. Stories. Really, they're all no yeah, kidding. Yeah, loads of them. loads of them, and all of them. You just it, it kind of shakes you a little bit, but then you just sit there and go, "Wow, that is crazy." <laughs> and uh, people have lots of these stories. It's the uh, you're the first person who's ever told me that. You know, um, it's like how do you explain it? You know, you can you can invalidate a four year old and say, "Oh, you don't know what you were seeing." And, and maybe that's right. Maybe I didn't know what I was saying, but I can tell you that's what I saw. Yeah. And I ran. Absolutely. I ran up and down the stairs to make sure I wasn't seeing things. That's amazing. That really is. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> that is really great. So come on from this. Now we're gonna go to something very, very softball. Uh, what's your favorite weather? Hot weather, 100 degrees. I'm like, you know, a pig in mud. So, <laughs> um, yeah, when I, when in high school, when I broke the record in, in uh, long jump, it was, it was during a state competition and, and 
It was about 98 degrees and everyone was suffering. There was, there were no clouds in the sky. And I was in like peak shape. I was, for me, I was in heaven and I, I was able to perform really well in that hot weather. I, I also used to race on bicycles, road racing, like toward the front. And those days when it was 95, I lived in DC at the time, very humid there. Man, I, I could just ride. I literally lost seven pounds in one day uh, just riding. From I rode from D.C. to Baltimore. Well, I had mostly, you know, water weight, but still seven pounds is a lot to lose in a day. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Um, that's funny. Um, most of the people who I, who I, who I have interviewed, I, one person has this very, very firmly, staunchly said he loves summer. And uh, most people uh, prefer uh, the current weather, fall, uh, October, uh, the, the, the autumn. So, uh, and, and most of the people uh, there, they love the cool, uh, so they say. Right. But uh, the people who do love the, the warm weather, boy, oh boy, like this one friend, he just, that's, he does, he can't, he, he comes from Belgium, so it's, it's a little bit colder in that most of the time, so he, he really loves the warm weather. So it's, it's interesting. Wow. Um, and uh, see how, how that you you have a different um, frame of mind. Um, so this question, this is considering what you do and your your history, and uh, this is a really good question. I think is that how do you connect with others in a strange environment? So now, when I left the country, I went through eight countries, and one of them was Belize, and in Belize. I lived literally in the jungle, mine Indians, no electricity, no running water. Wow. And uh, I, I, and actually, I lived with also another family. So I talk about being in a strange environment. You know, the village had 329 people. Um, so I, the way I connect with people in, in strange environments is, is really to listen and find out who they are and uh, what they're about and what they want to accomplish. Uh, it's almost like interviewing people. Yeah. So you, yeah. you learn to connect by, by listening. You know, it's, it's interesting because you learn to listen so acutely that you can hear what's being unsaid in a person's communication. Wait, wait, what they're omitting? Yes. Yeah, right. Or, or they don't know how to express it. Or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, sometimes I'll say to people, here's what I hear you saying. I'll repeat back. You know, it's a great technique to make sure, uh, it, to make sure you're connecting with the person. It's like, wow, you just said something incredible. Uh, here's what I hear you saying. And then I'll say, here's what I hear you not saying. And the person will say, yeah, you know, how'd you figure that out? But so it, it's like people communicate with you without words. Sometimes you just really have to listen for the language. And, and I guess people would say connecting dots, but really at, the, at that level, you're connecting dots that don't even exist. Yeah. I, um, one of my, uh, techniques, uh, to engage people, especially when they're younger than me, is in conversation, I'll, um, I'll get something wrong. 
uh, on purpose. And uh, when they jump in and correct me, I know that they're paying attention and I know they're engaged. If they're not, they, they just right. let it go. So that's, that's <laughs> right. just one. Not, not their head. <laughs> yeah. But if someone actually, you know, right, just stops, just in, in mid-sentence and corrects me, just says the correct term. So I'm like, okay, I know that they're completely, they're completely engaged. And that's just something that I, I picked up along, along the way. But I, that's one of my, cool. um, it's one of my connectors. Um, Very so, cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of effective and it gives me a good gauge on, on uh, you know, how, how well I am engaged with the other person. Um, right. So uh, this is okay. Another one for you, uh, considering your, your background. Um, do you have a checklist you routinely follow? If so, in what context? Business meeting, prep, chores, appearance, et cetera. So have you ever heard of the book uh, called The Book of Five Rings? I think I may have. It's uh, written by it. a Japanese, Japanese samurai. It, it's, it's worth it. It's, oh, it's a really short read. It's a little tiny book you can put in your pocket. Oh, yeah. um, and it was, it was written around 1643, around that time. Uh, and this guy said he never lost a, a fight as a sword fighter. And he, you know, he talks about how some people, they get into uh, swinging their sword with, you know, they focus so much on how their wrist, the flick of their wrist and, and all this sort of showmanship. And he said, the only thing that's important is your intention. And if you're going to fight someone in a sword fight, you better have one intention, which is to kill them. So don't worry about how well your wrist is flicking or anything. So he goes through all these techniques. That's pretty true. Uh, exactly right. Why, why are we doing this? Well, I'm, I'm here to kill you. So <laughs> I'm not here to show you how great I can use my sword. Yeah, exactly. You're, you, you'll never know. You'll be headless, right? So, that's right. That's exactly right. So, so... So that's really, he goes through all these techniques of how to be that deadly. And he says, if you learn to fight the way I've written here, you could literally fight 10 samurai and kill all 10 of them. He said, which then allows you to get an army of 1,000 samurai who are trained the way I do, and they can defeat an army of 10,000 every time. And there's something. This, this is the, the preparation. So if I'm doing speaking engagements and even dealing with some clients, there's a ceremony which he calls uh, the ceremony of dying, uh, dying before you go to battle, which means okay. that you're, you, you go through an entire ceremony which you are already dead, and now you're going to fight someone as a dead man. So that means you can't die. You have no fear. You only have your intention. So, you know, I've created sort of my own little ceremony. If I'm doing something that's really big and, and important and tactful, I'll go through this ceremony of dying. And now I'm only focused on my intention here, which is to speak or transform the lives of people there. Uh, all that's left is my, my intention, and I, I'm very focused, but I'm dead. So all the 
looking good and how I feel, all of that is gone. It's like getting in the zone on purpose. There you go. Okay, that's uh, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, and the name of this book again is Five Rings. The Book of Five Rings. The Book of Five Rings. I'll have to look that up. That sounds fascinating. Um, so it, um, I'm actually close to uh, the end. I have two more questions that you, both of you, uh, both of them are questions you've chosen. Um, tell me about your relationship with the animal kingdom. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like Tarzan. <laughs> Aren't you really? Okay. I well, had an you uncle. You know, my who was, father. I'm sorry, your uncle what? I had an uncle who was, we could make fun. He was St. Francis. I never saw anybody. He could stick his finger out and a bird would land on his finger. He was one of those people. No you know, kidding. No kidding. We had, uh, uh, growing up in the suburbs, we had squirrels all over the place, and they just run around and run away from us all the time. And he would stand still, and they would come up right to it's right to his feet, and he, and he he would he'd feed them. And in my entire life, I never ever had an interaction with, with a squirrel like that. And he had a cottage. He and his wife had had a cottage, and it was like a storybook. They had uh, dogs, cats, sheep, goats, ducks, um, geese, um, uh, pigs, and it was just like a storybook. And it was a thatched cottage he lived in. Um, and he was, wow. um, uh, he was an extraordinary individual, that's for sure. But yeah, so, so anyway, uh, <laughs> that's my personal experience. Tell me about yours. Well, you know, interesting. That's kind of how my father was. You know, he grew up in New Jersey and he had chickens, roosters, cats, dogs, pigeons. He, he had a pigeon coop. And so he had all these animals and he was sort of Dr. Doolittle and, Tarzan wrapped in one. So, you know, when we had dogs, I always watched how my father interacted with animals. And I'd say my brother and I, we both picked that up. You know, it didn't matter what kind of animal it was. There's, we just have a way of relating. You know, one day I was with a girlfriend and I saw a, a snake. It was a python, I think, or oh, a boa constrictor, one of them. And I said, hey, I'd like to see this snake. And the snake was about 10 feet long. And uh, the guy put it on my arm and I let the snake go up my arm. And then the snake wrapped around my neck and started to tighten up around my neck. Oh, no. And I, (laughs) yeah. But I figured the snake was just testing me to see if I was afraid. And that was my interpretation as a human, right? I, I could have been wrong and it would have strangled me, right? So, yes. But that isn't what it did. It went up one arm, right arm, wrapped around my neck, tightened up, and then came down on my left arm. And my girlfriend was, you know, a little bit concerned at first, like, but now she's watching it. And as she walked towards me, the snake put up its head and hissed as it was about, as though it was going to attack her. Um, so it was like I created a bond in, you know, just a couple of minutes with a snake that was now ready to protect me. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I have a, a, a childhood friend who uh, I grew up, uh, we grew apart, but uh, he, uh, in his late teens to mid-20s, um, had uh, he, he would uh, go on these expeditions with his friends, and he became something of a snake hunter himself. And wow. uh, they would 
he would go to Texas and he would, he and his friends would go and they would go on these, uh, these they would road trips and they would find snakes and grab them and they put them in a sack and they put them in the trunk of the car, take them back to New York and sell them to a uh, reptile collectors. And I, I, I heard these stories and I didn't really grasp what this guy had. And, uh, he was standing on uh, the lawn of my parents' house one, one evening, and with this eagle eye, he went and he just reached and he grabbed and he pulled and he pounced and he grabbed and he pulled the snake up on from the lawn. And I had no idea we had snakes on our front lawn. They were they were they were wow. all over the place. I had no idea. He said wow. they were all over the place, and I had no idea. And he picked it up and it was it was a garter snake, but I still had right. never ever imagined that there were snakes all over the place. What do you know? There are. So, <laughs> And that's uh, it's one of those things you scratch your head. It's still, it's still, it's, it's New York living. Um, it still boggles the mind right. every day. You know, you think about that. I just don't understand how he, and just that he had this innate sense and he had the steely eyes and he could just grab them lightning quick. But I, I didn't, I never ever knew that about, uh, uh, about the, uh, the, the ubiquity of snakes. You know, I, they hadn't, I didn't have any idea. So that's a, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, you have that experience, and you have that. Uh, I guess that uh, it's a touch. I think when you have when, when you, you can uh, when, you, when you can relate to animals that way. Right. So, right. so I had the two, last two questions you have uh, are uh, this one is um, ideally would you rather be an authority figure or someone with a great sense of humor, and what does that mean to you? Uh, so I, I would take the authority figure because you have uh, a greater, you're in a position for to uh, foster some kind of change or transformation. So not authority for the sense of, of dominating people. It's, it's actually to be able to effectuate change. Um, sense of humor can make people feel really good and, and comfortable but I've met people who had great sense of humor. And when it was time to really get down a business, they really were not always sure what direction to go. So um, an authority figure, you can have a sense of humor when it's appropriate. Um, but if you really want to get things done in life, uh, having authority, it, it, it's a better position to be in. I completely understand so now we're coming to the last of our 20 questions. And uh, this is the one, this is interesting to you, uh, to me. Uh, there's several people have answered this question as well. Uh, is there anything that comes effortlessly? Can I say that again? Is there anything that comes effortlessly, uh, effortlessly to you, which is considered impressive to others, <laughs> including speaking? Um, <laughs> uh, predicting outcome uh, of, of human behavior. So as I said, at nine years old, I started studying human behavior. And, and, and if you combine that with me living abroad, you know, living in jungles, going to eight different countries, I was looking to see if I could find people who were very different from any other people I ever met. And I never did, not in the jungle, not in Costa Rica, not in Panama, Mexico, El Salvador, all of those places. I found that everyone had to eat, sleep, go to the bathroom. They were happy, sad, jealous. I, I found all of that. 
And so people generally had a narrow range of responses, uh, you know, and so when I can, and I'm not saying I do it all the time, but if I, if I really tap into a person and really listen to them, you can, you can almost predict where this is, where they're going or how they're going to respond. It's, it's almost like playing chess sometimes and you already, you're already four moves ahead of the person uh, and you know what their next couple of moves are going to be. And people sometimes wonder, how do you do that? Um, you know, I've met women just out in the public and sometimes they freak out and they have asked me if I was a psychic. You know, how could you know I'm that kind of person? You just met me. We've been talking for literally 10 minutes and you know things about me. Um, that's kind of freaky. Like, who are you? So how do you, what do you attribute that to? Just your experience or your intuitive uh, understanding of people or a combination? That's that's part of what I was explaining. So you figure at nine years old, I'm literally studying human behavior. I'm reading magazines. I'm reading books. I'm understanding about human biology, sexuality, dating, uh, things that get people upset. I'm getting uh, reviews and answers from psychiatrists. And it's, uh, have you met, read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers? Yeah, actually, I've been, I listen to uh, his podcast uh, quite often, and I read, um, I think, bits and pieces of that. Uh, okay. Because he's, he's, he's everywhere all the time. So um, Absolutely. I, I do. I'm so, very familiar with Malcolm Gladwell. So Gladwell says an outlier, <laughs> like he was trying to figure out, why is it some people have this extraordinarily high performance uh, beyond what other people do? He said, you see it in musicians, you see it in uh, lawyers, doctors, you know, uh, computer programmers. And, And one of the things he discovered is to master your craft, if you put in 10,000 hours of practice, Oh yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I know that. I know this whole thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you figure, I started researching human behavior at nine. By the time I was 19, and and I never stopped. It wasn't like I just started at nine and I was curious. It was like, uh, it was just an intense desire to know and understand about people. And and not only, you know, I'm 10, 11, not only did I read things, I would actually then interview my, my aunt's friends or my mother's uh, friends. And I, I, would wanted, I wanted to verify my findings. And, I, and they wouldn't know I'm interviewing them, but they would be like, oh, that's so cute. You know, how old is he? He's 10. Do you know what he just asked me? You know, it, it would be cute, but, I, you know, I was writing reports in my head. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, That's great. And even even my mother told me that people thought I was strange because, you know, I'm four or five years old and all the other kids are playing and I wouldn't play with the children. I would just be standing around the adults listening. And I, I was once again, I was writing reports in my head. So by a certain age, you have I had 10,000 hours of it and I never stopped since nine years old. So. 
you, you see that people have a narrow range of responses. So people claim they have free will. And what I say to people is, you have free will to the extent you've been given free will. In other words, you've been given a Chinese menu and you can choose anything on the menu. And as long as it's on the menu, you can choose it and call it free will. The things that are off the menu, you can't choose that. And people don't really realize that. So when you understand, when you, when you look at that menu over and over, you understand the stimulus. There's some stimulus and there's this response. That, and they're both on the menu. And people have a narrow range of responses. So I, I guess between uh, research, uh, travel, and engaging people in conversations to understand, you know, what they think and why you start to see these patterns and you can predict them. Just, just like some people will do that in the stock market. Other people have to write algorithms, but someone else has been in a stock market for decades and they can see the patterns developing before everyone else does. So I do it with people. Very good. Uh, well, uh, that brings us to the end of our 20 questions. And uh, 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 this has been extraordinarily informative and uh, you told some fascinating stories and uh, some very keen insights. And uh, I want to thank you again, Ted. Uh, my pleasure. And um, I'm going to close the show, as I always say, so, uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. <laughs> My honor. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, peace out. Peace out squared. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Uh, thanks again, Ted. It's been a great day. All right.